The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. The early attempt at a rebound has started to fade, but now we're starting to come back. Bottom line is the Dow is lower for the 11th week in the past 12. That has never happened before. Worries about the economy? They are growing after the Fed got really hawkish Wednesday. We'll hear from someone who says that bigger rate hike was a mistake. And gasoline prices soaring over $5 a gallon this summer. You'd think the EV makers would be soaring as well, but they're not. Tesla losing a quarter of its value in the past three months, and it's the best performer. We'll dig into the problems. This was also supposed to be the summer of travel, but those stocks have been trading terribly. So we have three buys and a bail in the travel sector today. But first, let's get the very latest market numbers over to Dom Chu. It's about symmetry right now because it is balanced considering what we've seen over the last week. Again, again on pace, Kelly, to be the worst week since the pandemic lows in March of 2020. Uh, from right now, in this perspective, it's fairly calm and even, especially when it comes to the Dow. We're down 25 points. That's relatively flat. Uh, again, that symmetry note, uh, at the highs of the session, we were up 240 points for the Dow. It's not great, but it's still pretty decent. We were down 274 points at the lows. So we're kind of drifting right in the middle of that range. So again, that symmetry playing out as traders and investors try to handicap how this week shapes up for this particular Friday. The S&P right now, 36.73, the last trade there, up two-tenths of 1%. And then a composite index, the NASDAQ, up 1.5%. 10,800 or thereabouts on that trade. Now, with regard to the trade as the last week has kind of taken shape, over that time span, we've seen a decent, decent sized sell-off in certain parts of the market, specifically when it comes to energy stocks, down 17% for that ticker XLE ETF just in the last week. Meanwhile, the two best sectors on a relative basis have been more defensive, less economically sensitive ones like healthcare and consumer staples down roughly four to five percent. So still a down week for the market. Those are your outperformers energy really taking it on the chin. And then the, the positive, the bright spots. Over the course of this last week, there are roughly a dozen or so companies in the S&P 500 that were actually positive on the week. And some of them were driven by some fundamental catalysts, some analyst calls, some things like that. But FedEx shares up about 11 percent give some hope for them with some of those folks who like the transportation stocks as a leading indicator of the market. Boeing shares up about 8 percent as well. And then Oracle up about 2 percent. So, again, some of the mega cap names out there like FedEx, Boeing and Oracle have been doing, trying to do at least some of the work there. So, yes, not all negative, a little bit of positivity to send things back over to you, Kel. We'll see you later on this afternoon. All right, Dom, thank you. you now, it. we're not even halfway through the year, and there have already been 124 rate hikes by central banks around the world. With all the tightening, will all the tightening send us into a global recession? Our 10-year yield has fallen all the way from nearly 3.5% to nearly 3.2% today. Let's get to Rick Santelli out at the CME with the very latest. Rick? You, you've summed it up so well, but I'm going to sum it up as well. Central banks, they didn't see inflation coming. Our Fed and our chairman, Mr. Powell, he said he's not sure how this is all going to play out. They're going to monitor their markets. We know that their dot plots, what they think the market's going to do in future, their forecasting, isn't something to write home about. So really, 
we need to follow the market because the Fed follows the market. And in order to follow the market, you follow the money. So let's do that. We were just talking about how much lower we are. Well, we're up a little bit on the week in twos, threes, fives, all the way down to 30s. But look at the Tuesday extremes from two-year note yields, almost at 345. Here they now are at 314. Ten-year note yields, as Kelly pointed out, at 350, now trading at 321. This is a lot of volatility, but why would investors do that? Well, it's pretty obvious. They're putting their faith in the notion that we're not only going to see the brakes hit, but we're going to see the brakes hit on a number of countries. Look at Fed fund futures. Remember, the lower they go, the more Fed that's implied with respect to tightening. Well, that's Wednesday, the day the Fed did tighten. It made a new all-time contract low at 96.36 and a half which is now 18 and a half basis points below where we're trading, which means no matter which market you look at, globally or domestically, investors think the Fed and central banks are going to be successful. The problem is success seems to spell the R word. Back to you. All right, Rick. Thank you, Rick Santelli. And my next guest is not a fan of the Fed's big rate hike this week. He's been warning the economy is not as resilient as people think and says we could be in for a long stretch of barely any growth. Joining me now is Stephen Rusciuto. He's the chief U.S. economist at Mizuho. Steve, it's good to see you. And uh, what do you think the market's message is here? Is it pretty clear? Well, I mean, I think that the thing you have to take away from even Rick's previous comments is whenever the Fed lets the markets determine what's going on, it blows up in their face. Uh, Alan Greenspan allowed the markets to self-police themselves. We had the financial crisis. If the Federal Reserve is going to let the markets tell them where short-term interest rates could go, should go to bring down the rate of inflation, they're going to have a very, very disappointing growth environment. And their concept that we can have somewhat of a soft landing getting to one and a one point seven percent growth this year is just completely impossible. Our numbers are about 0.4 percent fourth quarter over fourth quarter. That's 1.3 percent below the Fed. Uh, given what they're doing, where forward rates have to go to validate the dots that they've put in, and they will do this, uh, this Federal Reserve is creating an environment where growth will probably average between minus one and a half percent and one positive one and a half percent over the four, five quarters from the first quarter of this year through the first quarter of next year. But the issue is not about keeping us out of recession, is it? It's really about taming inflation. Well, the reality is a lot of this inflation is not inflation that the Fed can control. And the Fed has taken the, 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 the guidance of, well, if they can't control food and energy prices, which they can't, they can't drill for oil, they can't raise crops, they're going to collapse the price of all other products so on aggregate inflation comes down. That could lead to a very, very disappointing macroeconomic environment. And for a lot of individuals who've been caught in the squeeze the squeeze of higher energy prices, higher food prices against incomes that are not keeping the pace with inflation, now you're going to jeopardize their jobs. It's double jeopardy for middle to lower income households, and that's the Fed's cure for creating, bringing inflation down to their target. Sure, it's questionable the, to me whether that's the right way to go. But if the inflation is just a food and energy problem, why do we have 11 million job openings? You know, why did home well, again, prices sort of records? Why are rents accelerating? Yeah, I don't believe the job openings numbers whatsoever. We don't have much history to understand what job openings really tell us. We had job openings that were substantially above hirings before the whole COVID environment. Now we have more. We don't know whether those numbers are real, what they're really trying to tell us. We have very limited data on it. To go back to your question with regard to why home prices are up and why rent prices are up. Remember, COVID created a huge 
adjustment in people's living patterns. It is a one-time permanent adjustment in how people are going to live because we have suddenly created an environment where work from home is a realistic alternative to working in offices. And there are going to be effects that that creates in terms of the inflation indices that are created. Is it a sustained inflation like we had in the 1970s? Or is it all a port part and parcel of a one-time permanent adjustment in prices that gets followed by a much lower infla inflationary environment on the other side of it? I think it's a one-time permanent shift, and therefore it'll be reflected in one-time permanent adjustment in the prices of those goods. The sustained inflation, though, could come from the labor market and from shelter, let's call it. So do you see any signs there that we're not going to have something that pushes wages still around a 5% level year-end rents, as I saw in J.P. Morgan's note the other day, they think rents could be 7% uh, come January. So those two categories are the bulk of core inflation, and they both see, uh, still seem to be pointing higher. Yeah, yeah, you have to keep in mind that there's a lot of other factors besides it besides rents um, and, and considerations like that that drive the overall inflation environment. Look, rents are important, but the reality of the situation is with regard to rents is we've had environments where we've seen rents go up before and they do not create a sustainable movement in the economy. Because if incomes are not keeping up with prices, you cannot get permanent upward movements in rents. In addition to that, with the slowdown in the economy we're envisioning, which is substantially greater than the slowdown in the Fed, the labor market is going to ease up. As the labor market eases up, the price that is paid for labor is going to come down, which then works its way right back into the rents that can be paid. Will it all happen in the time frame that the Fed wants? Probably not. But let's be honest, the Fed undershot inflation for over 15 years. We're going to have a big overshoot for one, one and a half years. If extended for two years and didn't create the kind of economic stress we're going to um, develop as a result of the Fed's policies now, so be it. It made more sense to allow that to happen than to basically leave households with less disposable, real disposable income after COVID than they had prior to COVID. And that's what their policies are going to do. All right, Stephen Rusciuto, we'll leave it there for now. Good to see you. Thanks. Cheers. Joining me with Mizuho Securities. Now let's pause for a moment and review the market moves we've seen this week, starting with the 876-point drop on Monday as markets brace for a bigger Fed rate hike. That extended into a 150-point drop on Tuesday ahead of the Fed decision. Then it was a rally on Wednesday after the actual 75 basis point hike, the Dow adding about 300 points. Yesterday, back to the downside. Dow down 740, and now we're on, on pace for an unprecedented 11th down week in 12. My next guest says this sell-off has now largely run its course. So what are his stock picks? Joining us is David Katz. He's the CIO of Matrix Asset Advisors. David, could you explain it and welcome whether you agree with Stephen about the subpar growth outlook we're headed into, or do you think regardless it's already priced in here? We think a lot of everything is priced in here, and we're a lot more optimistic that the Fed is actually getting its job done, and we're hopeful that the economy can weather it. Uh, we spoke with a lot of banks this week, and what they're seeing is very strong consumers, strong corporations. So we think it's a tightrope, but the Fed is going to be able to do it. Regardless, a lot of it's priced in. You've had a 10% markdown pretty much across the board so far this month, and that's large cap, small cap, growth, value, all sectors. So stocks have just been marked down. We think if you take a longer term view, you look at like six to 12 months, there are a lot of great businesses that are selling at 10 to 12 to 14 times earnings. 
historically, when you've been able to find that, you do very well if you have that six to 12 month time horizon. So we think the key to success here is not to focus on the day to day because you see the market schizophrenic, focus on the longer term, try to take advantage of these downdrafts. So in other words, on a day where some are declaring defeat, you know, and saying we are, you know, the recession is now baked in and it's the Fed's fault. You're looking at this and almost saying you're declaring victory. The market has now repriced, valuations have reset, and perhaps this can now pave the way for the beginning of a, I don't want to call it a comeback, but that tells you how bearish things have gotten. Well, we've gotten beaten up every day for the last month. I wouldn't say victory, but you're you're right in terms of, we think that the uh, market has priced in a lot of these negatives. And if you look at six to 12 months, things are not going to be as bad uh, as they seem right now. We do think that uh, the seeds of having inflation start to go down or starting to take hold. You're seeing a lot of companies that are saying they're slowing their hiring, they're freezing their hiring, they're laying off some people. The housing market is going to slow. When you take the 30-year mortgage from 3% to 6%, it's going to slow down. The people that were paying cash, they were using their winnings from either technology or cryptocurrency, they're going to go away. So we think a lot of things are in place to slow down uh, inflation. We think as that happens, the Fed hopefully is going to be a little bit less aggressive next year. But there are lots of really good businesses right now that you're getting at good prices. And again, when you're buying a company, you're buying the business for the longer term. Don't get caught up in the day to day swings because we think a lot of that is just over emotional and it's creating those opportunities. And you have an eclectic group of companies you're buying here. Some of them people would be nervous about a name like Starbucks because of the consumer exposure or the business revamp booking when the travel stocks have been struggling. Tell me, what's the common theme here? These are all really good businesses and good industries, market leaders. The stocks have all been beaten up. They're down 20 to 40 percent. You're getting with very attractive prices. Let's take Starbucks, for example. That's down from 110 to 72. CEO Schultz, uh, who just came back, bought $15 million worth of stock at these current levels. Uh, And what he said is that demand has outpaced the infrastructure. So he's got to build better in terms of their stores. very, very good long-term prospects, and you're getting it at a great discount. In terms of bookings, uh, people are moving from the stay-at-home economy back to getting back to life, uh, going to sporting venues, travel, restaurants, all plays well for bookings, yet you're getting it at a great discount. That stock has been hammered in the last few weeks. Their earnings prospects are very good. On next year's earnings, it's under 15 times earnings. And for a growth company, we think that's a very attractive price. And if I recall, you were not a big fan of energy because it had been so crowded. Is that right? I mean, we're now seeing a big correction in the sector. I'm wondering if it piques your interest. Uh, We still think most energy stocks are pretty fully priced. So you've you've seen the Chevrons and the Exxon sell up rather substantially. We would still say if you look at a year or two from now, uh, there's a good likelihood they're going to be lower. We were just speaking with Toyota the other day, and they were mentioning that they expect 70% of their fleet to be electric vehicles or hybrid by 2030. Most other automobile companies have said the same thing. So we do think you're going to see a secular slowdown in demand, uh, and and we're wary of the energy stocks. The one that we do like, which just got knocked off $10 in the last uh, week and a half, has been Schlumberger. Hmm. Uh, We think oil prices are high. In order for them to come down, you have to have a pickup in drilling. And whether it's in the United States or internationally, there's going to be more drilling activity. That place, the Schlumberger sweet spot, and you're getting it at a very attractive price. Always great to hear from you, David. Thanks so much. We appreciate it today. Thanks a lot. David Katz with Matrix.
Still ahead with those gasoline prices for now at record highs, shouldn't EV sales be skyrocketing? We're going to look at their selling prices and the problems for some of the biggest names in the space next. Plus, a special travel edition of three buys into bail, featuring this Dow component trading around its lowest level in a year. But will investors' patience pay off? Our trader weighs in. And as we head to break, let's get another look at the markets. They're now back in the green. The Dow up 140 points or half a percent. Look at the NASDAQ up 2% today. Russell 2000's up 1.5%. And the 10-year yield, 3.209. We're back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. We've been talking a lot about the energy space. Just got a news alert in the uh, oil market where Baker Hughes is reporting that energy firms added oil and nat gas rigs for a second straight week. Oil rigs hit the highest level since March of 2020. Gas rigs at 2019 highs. Energy companies are now producing 12 million barrels a day. That's a 2020 high. And it is let's say adding or at least not alleviating the downward pressure on WTI today, down 6.5% to $110 a barrel, a potentially very significant development for everything from the rate complex to the inflation outlook. So let's stick with energy and those stubbornly high gasoline prices. Automakers have been racing to take advantage of the demand this is spurring for EVs. So why aren't these EV stocks benefiting? Phil LeBeau is tracking all the latest action in the space he's here now. Phil, welcome. So let's just start with the sticker shot because we keep seeing these prices get more expensive. It's not just Tesla, is it? No, it's not. It's across the board. It's the entire industry. And that's because of what we're seeing when it comes to the components that go into making EV batteries. That's the biggest expense that's there. Those keep going up. We've talked about lithium, nickel, you name it. Across the board, all of those prices have gone up substantially. And as a result, EV prices for the ones that are being manufactured now, those prices have also gone up. We had J.D. Power crunch the data month by month over the last year. And what J.D. Power found is that we're close to or at a record high when it comes to EV prices. 53.9, that's the average of what's paid What's paid by you or I to buy a new electric vehicle, Kelly, that's up 31% compared to a year ago, about $8,500 more, $8,400 more than the average of any new vehicle that people are buying right now. So you're paying up if you want that electric vehicle. 
You certainly are. And as we said, normally you might think investors would love it, but here there are a bunch of problems. For instance, we used to talk a lot about pre-orders and future production, yep. and you'd see valuations surge just off that. But now the mood is changing, and what do people want to see, real earnings and cash flows? They want to see production, and they want to know when it's going to happen. And obviously, they want to see earnings and cash flow. That's not going to come for a while. Tesla is the only EV automaker that's profitable right now. Look, even Ford CFO the other day said that the initial profitability that they had on the Mustang Mach-E, that's been wiped out by rising costs. And so when you look at some of these automakers, and whether you're talking about Tesla or the legacy automakers, or if you're starting about the, talking about the, new, the startups, the Rivians, the Fiskers, the Lucids, what, the Wall Street, what Wall Street wants to see is where's production at and how quickly is it going to ramp up? And the reality is it's not coming very fast. It's going to take some time. And that's why Tesla remains, generally speaking, the only game in town when it comes to electric vehicles. Yes, Hyundai, Volkswagen, and Ford, they're picking up some market share. But generally speaking, when you talk with people, Kelly, have you ever heard somebody say, I'm in the market for an EV and I'm going to go test a whole bunch of automakers? Or do they say, I'm going to buy an EV, I'm going to see what Tesla has? Yeah. At least for now, Tesla remains, remains for now, the primary option for a lot of people because they've got the Model 3 and the Model Y and the others, much smaller selection. And especially the startups. What about the legacy players, though, if we're talking about an environment where investors most want to see, OK, go ahead, scale production, get this thing up to size. Right. Can GM and Ford or Toyota, whose shares we were just showing, uh, is that where they can compete? They can eventually because they'll have the scale worldwide and the ability to drive down the cost of components, battery packs, etc., but it's not going to happen anytime soon, Kelly. They're, they're both, take a look at GM and Ford. They're pumping each of them about 30 to $35 billion into their EV plans, and they're adding battery plants, new plants for final production. We really don't see that production ramping until maybe towards the end of next year, all the way through 26. And yes, Ford is already ramping production of the F-150 Lightning, and they'll have sizable numbers next year. But when you see the big three really come with electric vehicles, that's out a couple of years. And that's why so many people are saying, who's going to reap the benefits from anybody who wants to buy an EV right now? It is Tesla. It has the Gigafactory in Texas coming online. It's got the Fremont plant. I mean, they've got the production that others will eventually have, but they don't have right now. And to your point, Phil, just crossing the wires, General Motors is saying the price of the electric Hummer is going up by $6,200 effective Saturday Not because of parts, technology, and logistics. Reservations placed before Saturday are exempt from the increase. This is already something that retails 80 to 100 k and you already have to wait till 2024. And who knows what you know, personal financial condition a lot of those buyers will be in by then. Right. And remember this, Kelly, you're talking about a vehicle. The initial ones are selling for well over $100,000. That's a very, very small segment of total auto sales. A limited number of people will want to buy that vehicle. They, they will want it. It's in demand and GM will sell those electric Hummers. But it's going to be a long time before we see EV prices come down into that Thirty-five dollars to $45,000 range. It's just not happening anytime soon. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Phil, thank you very much, as always. Still ahead, only six names in the NASDAQ 100 are less than 15% off their highs. Most of them down more than 50%. So where do we go from here? We'll look at some lessons learned from the dot-com bubble. Plus, today's triple witching options expiration, that plus short covering, are giving stocks some cover, according to one technician. We'll dive into the data ahead. The Dow's set to end the week down 5% since Monday, worse since the pandemic. 
As we head to break, Chevron still the biggest drag on the index today. Amex, Boeing and Salesforce are the best performers. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back to The Exchange, everyone. Time to break out those Dow 30,000 hats. Where's Dom? He usually has one. Uh, we're up a quarter percent today. That puts us back above that level by four or five points right now. The S&P is up half a percent, and the Nasdaq is up almost two percent. Now, in terms of the sectors, energy, materials, and utilities are the worst performers today. Energy, the headline by far, it's down almost six percent. And if you look at the one-week moves, energy is down 17 percent since Monday, as crude looks to snap a seven-week winning streak. At the same time, the solar stocks are outperforming the Invesco Solar ETF TAN, having its best day in about two weeks. You can see also the other names in the complex up 9 to 12%. Still a lot of these names underwater for the week. Elsewhere, AB InBev is hanging on to gains after the CFO said price increases are one of the ways they plan to manage rising costs due to inflation. They'll also experiment with shrinkflation, as we would call it, pack sizes, container materials. The stock is on pace for its fifth straight month of losses, its longest losing streak in over a decade. But the CFO insisting that in good times, it's great to be a beer company. In bad times, it's very good as well. Shares are down, you could say, only 14 percent since January. Let's round out the week with a look around the world. Emerging markets holding up better than the U.S. this week. The China ETF you see here only down about a percent since Monday. Investors hoping a peak in the dollar for now might bolster the performance of these global markets. And with that, we send it over to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. On the note that it's always good to be a beer company, Kelly, thank you very much. As President Biden left the White House today to travel to Delaware, he was asked about two American veterans who were reported missing after they went to Ukraine to fight against Russian invaders. I have been briefed. We don't know where they are, but I want to reiterate, Americans should not be going to Ukraine now. Say it again. Americans should not be going to Ukraine now. A 71-year-old man is now in police custody after allegedly using a handgun to kill two people at a potluck dinner in an Alabama church last night. Police say a person at that event subdued the shooter until police arrived, potentially saving lives. And former Trump advisor Peter Navarro has pleaded not guilty to contempt of Congress charges. He's refusing to cooperate with the House's January 6th committee. As he arrived at the courthouse, he told a photographer it's, quote, a lovely day in the swamp. Tonight on the news, the 50th anniversary of the Watergate burglary that eventually brought down President Richard Nixon will take you back to the scene of the crime 
with two police officers who were there that night. That's tonight with Shep Smith at 7. Kelly, back to you. I'll see you top of the hour, Tyler. Thanks. Still ahead, it's three buys and a bail travel edition. We showed you a mystery chart of one of the buys. Here's the bail, down 53% this year, 17% this week. Why you should stay away from it next. And during June, CNBC is celebrating Pride Month, featuring some of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here is the former president of the NBA champion Golden State Warriors, Rick Wells. I just think June, you know, for the LGBTQ community is just a time to reflect on uh, the journey that we've been on, uh, take stock of where we are right now and, uh, and think about the future. So I'm proud of the people who are out there telling their stories in all walks of life to really help people understand that, that we're part of the fabric of this country. Welcome back. The travel stocks have seen some wild swings over the past two years. First slumping, then soaring, then slumping again post-pandemic. The cruise lines are now trading back at the same levels we saw in early 2020 when the pandemic first hit. So which names here are the buys and where should you bail in the travel sector? Let's ask Gina Sanchez with today's three buys and a bail. She is Chantico Global CEO and a CNBC contributor. Gina, welcome. Your first couple buys have a common theme here. The first one is Marriott. We teased it earlier. Down 26% from the highs. Why are you a buyer? So Marriott right now is one, is a stock that is, you know, they've been telegraphing that they have very, very strong occupancy and that occupancy is continuing to improve. Um, and one of the things that I said even a long time ago when we were in the middle of the pandemic is if you want to take your family on a vacation, the only thing that qualifies it as a vacation is a hotel. You can skip the plane, you can skip everything else. As long as you get to a hotel, the kids are happy. And I think that's going to be the theme this summer as people are trying to save money. Um, Marriott has uh, a fantastic offer. Offering, obviously, but they also are less, they're, they're better valued than some of the other um, hotels like Hilton or, or Hyatt. You know, they're trading at 13 times. That's actually pretty attractive right now. Concerned about the, whether we call it an actual recession, a technical recession, you know, the loss of consumer real income growth and spending power. Yeah, you know, that's that is an issue, obviously. And and, you know, if you if you look at Marriott, it also benefits from business spending where you have a little less, um, uh, you know, it, it's, it's not quite as elastic as as consumer spending. But even there, you're hearing companies that are kind of uh, reducing their travel budgets as well. But Marriott uh, is a beneficiary. And again, you know, they have strong cash flow, they have a good balance sheet, they have good debt to EBITDA. And so the company itself is just positioned to weather this volatility because they're getting both the business travel as well as um, as individual travel and, and their balance sheet is good. All right, let's turn then, sticking with the hotel space, but to a different name, Choice Hotels. This is your second buy, it's down 25% this year and they recently announced an acquisition of the Radisson Hotel brand. Is that deal making part of the attractiveness here? Absolutely. And part of the reason that they're able to do that deal making, Kelly, is because they have an extremely strong balance sheet. If you look at their debt to EBITDA, they're probably one of the best in the industry. So they are in a position to be taking advantage uh, of the volatility and expanding their line. The other interesting thing about Choice Hotels is because it's, it's you know, this is like, you know, Choice, this is Clarion, this is a little lower down the food chain. So it's, it's more affordable for people uh, to come and stay there. It's more of a family hotel. Um, it also has probably some of the biggest margins 
margins uh, in the business. It's 40% margins. That's not that's not bad. Um, and so you know all of the things line up for them to be able to deal with um, rising inflation pressures, uh, etc. And just they have a really really strong balance sheet. Yeah, that's Pat Patius, the CEO, we've had on a, a number of times here as well. All right, finally, a name that is a financial, I guess technically, but doubles as a travel name, Amex down only 14% this year. It's held up well, uh, but again, we have recession and and sort of consumer concerns lingering. Yeah, you know, the the question is, well, will the kind of loss of consumer spending hit the credit cards? But the other side of the credit cards is the rise in interest rates is actually benefiting them. Um, And so, you know, we actually like all of the credit cards. We own Visa and MasterCard at Lido Advisors. Um, But American Express is one of those that's just gotten a bump up by, by, you know, a few of the analysts. And if you look at the outlook, it's a little more, it's a little better priced. Um, It's got all of the things, it checks all of the boxes. It's got, you know, great margins. It's got a good balance sheet. Um, And so, you know, we're sort of banking on the fact that what they lose in consumption, they're going to gain on the interest rate play and vice versa. When we go, when we get to the other side of this, they'll also be pretty well positioned, um, you know, to sort of keep participating on the consumption side. So what you lose in one, you're gaining in the other. And (laughs) you you do need some interest rate protection in your portfolio. Interesting. And they're Ford PE under 15 as well here. All right. Those are your three buys. Let's move on to the bail. And it's Carnival, which has already been under a tremendous amount of pressure. One of the worst, most emblematic names of the return to the pandemic trade. It's back to April 2020 levels. That was just a few weeks after the CDC's no sale order. Uh, Yes, it's a top five performer in the S&P today. It's extremely high beta. It's always amongst, it feels like the top uh, or the bottom names, depending on the market. Why is this one a bail for you? So for us, uh, you know, you've probably heard this theme now. I've said it a few times. We're really looking at the balance sheet of some of these companies to say, okay, if we do go into sort of more difficult times, who's got the balance sheet to support it? All of the cruise lines really fell into a really, really bad space because they because of the no sale order, um, and they're also incredibly expensive to operate. And so even just you know docking the ships is incredibly expensive. The maintenance doesn't stop. Even if you're running the ships, you're dealing with fuel costs. And so you know they're really getting hit on all sides: finding labor, inflationary pressures in wages fuel costs, none of that bodes well. You look at their margins, and right now their margins obviously are negative because they're not making any money, um, and they just are carrying a massive debt load that they need to figure out what to do with. In, t- in a recession, that's really what you want to avoid. Yeah, debt, obviously, that needs to be refinanced at higher rates. That won't help as well. Quickly, are you bearish on all of the cruise names? Um, or in, and I should note, none of your buys were you know, airlines or, or the kind of travel, travel part of this market. No, you know, the reason for that, Kelly, is because we are concerned about the fact that uh, oil prices are just staying high longer um, than even we expected. And the longer those oil prices stay high, um, it's going to pressure margins on anybody that has to buy any kind of fuel. So it's why we sort of he- headed towards the the, uh, the hotel names uh, in the travel space. Um, you know, the cruise lines right now, they just, a lot of them actually have quite negative balance sheets, and it's just a hard place for us to get comfortable. Um, so it's that's really been the reason why we've stayed away. I mean, those guys just had a double whammy and that they were carrying tons of debt and they were getting hit by all the inflationary uh, pressures. Exactly. All right, Gina Sanchez, thank you so much. We appreciate it. Three buys and a bail on the travel space today. Coming up, the Nasdaq more than 33% from its highs. And while the drop may feel like the dot-com crash, 
history is not repeating itself exactly. We're going to look at what is different this time around next. Speaking of the NASDAQ, check out this week's winners with biotech posting strong gains, CGen, the best name in the index, JD.com, Vertex, Zoom Video, they round out the top five. Stay with us. Welcome back. The Nasdaq's 30% plunge this year may conjure memories of the early 2000s, but not all tech wrecks are created equally. Christina Partsonevelis is in Times Square with a look at while history may be rhyming, it's not really repeating here. Christina? Well, Kelly, today is day 211 of the Nasdaq bear market. Like you mentioned, over 30% lower from its peak in November, reminding many of what happened in the early 2000s. And no, it's not Destiny's Child top song, Say My Name. From early 2000 to mid-October 2002, the Nasdaq faced its worst bear market ever, plunging more than 75% as largely unprofitable tech firms like, remember, Pets.com, fell by the roadside. But does today compare? Take a look at this graphic that we put up on your wall. Today's current bear market plunge is still not the worst of the bunch since 2000. I didn't even have enough room to put all the bears on that screen. And valuations were much higher in 2000. The cap-weighted tech index traded at 60 six times earnings in March 2000 versus 32 this past November. In other words, not nearly as expensive. Meanwhile, the Nasdaq, since we are talking about this, is hovering around session highs. And I want to just focus on today's movement. CGen is surging in the top performer on the NAS 100 on reporting that Merck is eyeing a potential purchase. This could be the best week for CGen since 2012. And then you've got Airbnb, Biogen, DocuSign, the biggest winners today, with Match Group, Constellation Energy, that's an important one, and Kraft Heinz, the worst. And lastly, semiconductors are still struggling. It's Marvell's worst week since 2015 and AMD's worst since since 2018. And since we just talked about all of these technology firms, big picture though, valuations, we know they've come down. And now the question is whether earning expectations are accurate, especially when the Fed is trying to reduce inflation and in turn, potentially lowering the pricing power of companies. And you mentioned Constellation. Why does that one stand out so much? Because I wanted to see which companies were already off their 20, uh, tw like dropped 20% from their most recent high and are not making any money. So if you look at the gross income just within the last fiscal year of all the NASDAQ 100 companies, there's only two names on that list that are not profitable or have a negative gross income and have fallen. That would be Lucid Motors as well as Constellation Energy. On the uh, NASDAQ itself, there's about 455 names. Too many for me to list. Yeah, exactly. We'll leave it there for now. Christina, thanks. Christina Partsonevelis. Coming up today marks one of the biggest options expirations in years, which could mean volatile trading into the close. We'll get you the numbers and read the tea leaves to gauge the market's next moves after this quick break. Welcome back to The Exchange. A big day for the options market with the highest level of quarterly contracts expiring since 2020. My next guest is watching some big moves in the credit space as well. He says put volumes in the high yield index have, quote, exploded. This with the HYG already down 15 percent this year. Let's bring in Chris Murphy. He's co-head of derivative strategy at Susquehanna. Good to see you again, Chris. So let's just start with options. Does that mean today's market move should be taken with an asterisk? You know, no, there's been a lot of talk about how is expiration going to impact uh, the markets today. So one thing to keep in mind is we've sold off a lot recently. So a lot of the open option positions are currently higher than where we are right now. 
Uh, the argument would be that if we do continue to trade higher throughout the afternoon and some of those, you know, for example, in the money puts uh, end up out of the money by the afternoon, then you might have hedgers and market makers have to go out and buy back some stocks. So that could exacerbate some of these moves. Um, and certainly options expiration is going to have an impact on uh, the trading today. But it sounds like you're saying, if anything, this this could tilt us to the upside. Like if we are trading to the upside throughout the afternoon, that might cause what could I call it a bit of a short squeeze almost? Yeah, they, you know, they would call it a gamma squeeze. Um, that's correct, because if you think about it, all, you know, for example, puts that might have been bought a month ago or two weeks ago, they're in the money now by enough amount that they're probably fully hedged. So if we go down further, there's not much extra things to do. However, if we do move higher and all of a sudden you don't need as much of a hedge on those in the money puts, yeah, it could have an impact on the upside. Yes. All right. Well, I'm totally going to casually drop that into conversation tonight just to seem cool uh, to my kids. Uh, so let's talk now about what's going on in the credit space. People have been focusing on the high yield spreads jumping out to five points for the first time uh, in a little while. What are the significant levels that you're watching, obviously, from the ETF side? And what do they tell you? Yeah, we're looking at the HYG and um you know, the, that has become a very popular vehicle for exposure. It's highly correlated to the S&P, and it's had outsized moves uh, recently compared to, uh, you know, the premium or the implied volatility that you had to pay for the option. So if we looked at it last week, um, you know, HYG, 30-day implied volatility was around 10%. And we were talking about how it's a pretty good vehicle for exposure. That was a week ago. All of a sudden, now it's at 20%. So those investors who did get some hedges in the HYG last week, uh, volatility is twice as high. So now the question is, now that it's doubled, it's certainly not still cheap. It might even become uh, arguably rich. Um, but you know, it has become very popular, like I said, Put volume, call volume, open interest, et cetera, has just absolutely exploded compared to we were a year or two ago. And just to be clear, though, would you say it's almost a contrarian sign that once it gets to these levels that maybe the move, you know, the big spread widening has run its course? Yeah, I mean, certainly uh, you can make that argument for the volatility level. It doesn't necessarily mean whether it's going to go uh, up or down or, or whatever. But, you know, those options were, were, were are usually pretty inexpensive. But because of what's been happening recently, they're now become pretty expensive. So a lot of volatility is being priced into that product, a lot of eyeballs on that product. And now you have to wonder if it's a little bit overdone. Quick final question. You say a lot of people are asking you why the VIX isn't higher. Explain. Sure. Um, that's the biggest question we're getting. You know, in my opinion, just looking at, you know, what's the risks? They're pretty well known. It's almost been less slow motion you know, hopefully soft landing, but slow motion crash kind of argument. You know, you have higher inflation. The Fed's got to be hawkish. Is it going to cause a recession? We know all these things. It's not, you know, surprising us like maybe COVID did. Uh, another argument, you know, you keep hearing about how the hedge fund community is, you know, degrossed or have taken their positions down. Well, they're a typically a user of puts for protection, but if they have degrossed their positions that they don't have as much exposure on, they're not going to have to buy as many puts. That's not going to lead volatility to go higher. And that could be another reason why we're not seeing those outsized moves higher in volatility. You, in a word, you know, you, you talk to people over the weekend, you tell me feeling more bullish or bearish on this market in general. Uh, give me a long timeline and I'm yeah. bullish always. Okay. Uh, you know, near term, I'm not, unfortunately not seeing it, but long term, I'm very bullish. All right. All right. I appreciate you taking the question. Chris, thanks uh, for joining us. 
Chris Murphy with Susquehanna. Up next, Bitcoin falling nearly 30% this week. We're below 21,000 and Kate Rooney is in Miami with what it means for the city that positioned itself as the capital of crypto. Kate? Hey, Kelly, that's right. This city has really built itself as the crypto capital. There's been a lot of hype around the industry and tech talent moving here to Miami. But now the crisis, uh, prices are crashing. Are they going to be as bullish? Is some of that enthusiasm fading? We'll have a lot more on that live here from Miami after the break. The exchange will be right back. Welcome back. It's been a rough week for stocks, but far rougher for crypto. Bitcoin falling nearly 30 percent. And our Kate Rooney is in Miami, the self-proclaimed epicenter of the crypto industry, with a look at the fallout and what it all means for the capital of capital. Kate? Hey, Kelly, that's right. Many here in Miami are now feeling the pain as those crypto prices you mentioned crash. Investors are holding on to some optimism for a rebound. They really bet their careers on it. But they say there's a sense of shock right now especially from some of the younger crypto and NFT investors about how fast prices of digital currencies and digital collectibles like the ones on this mural have dropped. The city has been looking to attract top crypto and top tech talent. The crypto bull now outside of Miami-Dade College was one symbol of that hype. There's even Miami coin, the city's namesake cryptocurrency, down about 95%. It's now trading at a fraction of a penny. Mayor Francis Suarez talked about it as a potential alternative to taxes. And while the project has provided some windfall to the city, the mayor acknowledges it does come with some risk. These technologies are extremely new. And so, you know, they're always uh, speculative, right? And so, you know, one of the things I've always said is, look, you should never invest money on a, something that you don't A, believe in, or B, you know, there is a possibility that you could lose that money. So it's gotta be money that you're willing to sort of invest in that way. Then there's the nightlife. Tables at clubs like 11 can cost at least $50,000. It accepts crypto, and the club tells me a recent slowdown in crypto spending that they've seen might just signal the end of conference season or people leaving for the summer. It is pretty hot here. Too soon to tell, but investors in Miami on the long term still very bullish, but uh, pulling back a little bit here for now, Kelly. Is it rippling through the real estate market, Kate? It is. Interestingly, uh, the crypto wealth here has been a boom for uh, real estate. We talked to one agent who said about 10% of deals had some sort of crypto involvement. She said it's sort of on pause. And the word she used was essentially they used to wait for the right unit or the right time. Now they are waiting for the market to rebound. And that's really what they're watching. So they are seeing a little bit of a freeze, though, on real estate, crypto real estate activity. And you have to wonder almost the Miami economy more broadly, right? Yeah, we asked Francis Suarez about that as well. I think that is one of the fears that not only crypto, but we're seeing tech valuations get hit in the broader economy. That's been one of the big booms for the city. If they're spending less, if they're worth less in general, it could uh, we could see that affecting Miami, although it seems to be a broader U.S. and global problem. That would be his argument that it's not just a Miami problem. It's some of the, the issues that are hitting the rest of the country and the world at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, crypto is the only kind of winner you feel in Miami, Kate. Thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. 
That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.